This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love. Amen. So, um, we have been walking through Ephesians, and Ephesians really breaks down very neatly. If you think about the structure of the letter, it's very, very clear, very, very simple. So, there's six chapters in Ephesians, and you can think of chapters one through three as done. Chapters one through three are really about what God has done for us in Christ. And so, in chapters one through three, we're seeing like all of these amazing blessings that are already ours in Christ, done. Chapters four through six are really about what we are to do in light of what God has done for us in Christ. So, chapters one through three, done. Chapters four through six, do. Chapters four through six are about who we are to be, how we are to live, how we are to walk as believers in light of of what God has done for us in Christ. How should we then live? How should we conduct ourselves? What are we to do? That's chapters four through six. And so we begin that today as we look at chapter four and verses one through six, which is about unity in the body of Christ. Chapter four and verses one through six, I invite you to follow along in your copy of God's word as we look at it together. Chapter four, beginning with verse one, Paul says, therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, and through all, and in all. And so, Father, as we come before you now, and we prepare to to dig into your word right now, we pray that by your Spirit that you would open our eyes to to see the the beauties and the glories, the riches of of your word. Lord, we, we, we need you. We need the the, the power of your, of your spirit to, to understand your word and, and apply it. And, and Lord, we, we pray today that as we, as we begin this new section of Ephesians, that's all about how we are to, to live out our faith, what, what we are to do in light of what you've, you've done. The first thing that you're calling us to here is to live in such a way that we promote unity and harmony in the body of Christ. 
And so, Lord, we know how important that is to you, and we pray that it would be that important to us as well. So much is at stake in the unity of the body of Christ. People will know that our faith is real. They will know that you are real by the love that we have for one another in the church family. And, and so, Lord, we, we, we pray that as we, as we dig into this text, um, that you would work in our lives to, to make us the kind of people um, that live in such a way that we promote the unity of your body. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So without a doubt, you know, over my years of, of ministry, uh, the, 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 the most disheartening, discouraging thing as a, as a pastor, without a doubt, is when, when people act in ways that are that are, are, dis, are disunifying, uh, when people act in ways that are contrary to the, the unity of the church. You know, when you think about all the things that can happen, uh, when you think about tragedies in people's lives and living in a world where there's death and, and, and grief and where people pass away sometimes in circumstances that are especially uh, tragic, those things are hard to walk through, but we, we know we're living in the kind of world where that um, happens. And, and a lot of times in those situations, people actually draw together and you really kind of experience the, the love of people for one another um, in the church families. There's beautiful things that can come out of that. When you think about sort of the, the battle that we all expect to wage as Christians with, you know, the, we're, the world, the flesh, and the devil, uh, the, the outside world is kind of like not thrilled about uh, who we are. We've got a supernatural adversary, the devil, that is attacking us and coming against us. But again, those are battles that we kind of expect to fight or we should expect. What, what really though makes us sometimes throw up our hands in exasperation is when Christians are battling one another. That's, that's the most discouraging thing really that, um, that churches can, can face. But, but really for me, the most shocking thing has not been disunity that I've seen in American churches. The most shocking thing to me has been the disunity that I've seen on teams of people that I would think would be the least likely candidates to display disunifying behavior. For instance, on, on missionary teams. As an, I, as an IMB trustee, it, it's been an eye-opener for me to to, to travel and to relate to a lot of uh, missionary teams around the world, these are made up of people who have sacrificed an extraordinary amount. They have made incredible sacrifices to do what they're doing. They have left the comforts 
of American culture to, to go and, and, and minister in incredibly hard settings, doing hard things and learning language and learning to live cross-culturally and, 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 and all of those things. But the toughest challenge for our missionary teams, and you can pray about this, the toughest challenge for them is not learning language or learning to live cross-culturally or radical Islam or, or any of those things. Their toughest challenge is preserving the unity of their teams. Now, the, the recent trip that I took, we got to visit with four teams. They all have wonderful unity, wonderful synergy on, on those teams, but virtually every person on those teams knows what it's like to be a part of a team that just blew up. And so, that was an eye-opener for me, really. Another eye-opener for me was the disunity among overseas churches. Now again, one would think that if you are a Christian in a country where Christians are a tiny minority of people, and often a tiny persecuted minority of people, you would think that, wow, well, all the Christians in that place would just draw together and, you know, they would all, they would all just kind of love one another because they're, they're, they're in this situation where they're a tiny minority and they're often being persecuted and things like that. And so you would think that, that overseas churches would, would really just kind of be naturally drawn together in, in love. And, and, and a lot of times you, you do see that, but wow, <laughs> I have been really, really shocked to see um, the number of church splits that happen in, 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 in churches that are in countries where there are hardly any Christians. And so what few churches there, there are are fledgling, struggling little churches but so often they have, they have come apart time after time after, after time. Again, huge eye-opener for me, but maybe I should not have been shocked by any of that, and here is why. When you read the New Testament, <laughs> what do you see? So at the beginning of the formation of the church on, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, the believers are brought together, and by the, by the end of the second chapter of Acts, what, what do you see there? You see that they were all together in one accord. There was an incredible unity in the, in the Spirit brought together at the day of Pentecost and in the immediate days that follow. But then when you read the remainder of the book of Acts, what do you see? Well, the Spirit's working Miracles are happening, new churches are being planted, disciples are being made, so the Spirit is working, but what else do you see when you read the book of Acts? You see that even as the Spirit worked, right, and people are coming to Christ and churches are being planted, that at every stage of that, there, was the, there were issues of, of, of conflict and disunity that, that had to be dealt with. 
And then when you read the rest of the New Testament, and you read especially the, the letters of the Apostle Paul, which are written to churches and church leaders, what do you see again and again and again and again and again? In every letter, he is having to address issues related to disunity. In many of his letters, Paul is, is addressing very specific cases of disunity. Uh, that's not the case in Ephesians. In Ephesians, which is kind of, it, it's, a, it's, it's a circular letter. So it was not just written to the church at Ephesus. It was written to churches in the surrounding area. So he's not really here addressing a specific instance of disunity. But he knows that in every church, unity is such a challenge that when he comes to this portion of the letter where he begins to talk about how we live out our faith in the body of Christ, what is the very first topic that Paul addresses here? Unity in the body, because he knows how critical this is and, and how in order to preserve unity, we have to be so, so vigilant in guarding that. And so what we see here in verses one through six is something about the importance of unity, but then how to be the kind of person, how to walk, how to conduct yourself in a way that promotes unity in the body. So we see some principles here for doing that, for being the kind of people who promote unity in the body of Christ. The first one is this, remember your high calling. Remember your high calling. Let's look at verse one. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. So let's look at that word walk. It means how you conduct yourself. How you conduct yourself. How you live your life. How you behave. Your, your walk, your conduct, he says, is to be in line with the calling that you have received. And the calling that he's talking about is the call to follow Jesus. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit called you to Christ. Open your heart. Now, there was a person who issued an external call, right? Whether it was a friend or a parent, or a Sunday school teacher, or a coach, or, or whoever, right? Somebody shared the good news of the gospel with you, and they issued an external call. But, but at the same time, there was an internal call that was happening in your heart. The Holy Spirit was opening your heart to repent and trust in, in Christ. That's the calling that he's talking about here. So the Holy Spirit called you and opened your heart to respond to the gospel, to receive the Son, and through the Son, we are brought to the Father who has adopted us as his own children. You are now a son or daughter of the King. No calling could be higher than that. No calling could be more noble than that. To be a son or a daughter of the King 
And so Paul is saying here, act like that. Act like that is your calling. You could not have a higher calling. You could not have a more noble calling. So conduct yourself, walk in a way that is consistent with that. And specifically, walk in a way that promotes the unity of the body of Christ. So remember your high calling. Second principle, we see here the unifying conduct that matches your calling. The unifying conduct that matches your calling. Let's look at verses two and three. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So, in verse 3, he calls us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In verse 2, he's talking about the kind of character that produces unity, the kind of character that promotes unity. What kind of character is that? First of all, humility. With, with all humility. The, 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 word, the word here means lowliness of mind as opposed to haughtiness of mind. Now, our, our 21st century Western culture and first century Greco-Roman culture have lots of things in common. Sexual immorality, substance abuse, okay, all those things were rampant in, in, in the, the culture in which this letter was originally written. But we also have something else in common in 21st century Western culture and first century Greco-Roman culture, and that is that neither of those cultures really prizes the virtue of humility. In, in ancient Roman uh, literature and, and Greek literature, if humility is spoken about at all, it's spoken about negatively. They did not prize humility. They did not even think of it as a virtue. They thought of pride and strength as virtues, not understanding that true strength is found in humility and, and not in arrogance. And when you look at our culture today, which is so narcissistic, uh, so much of our culture, so much of media, social media is all about kind of look at me. You know, when Dean Smith was the, the basketball coach at the University of North Carolina, when I was growing up watching those Carolina teams play basketball and, you know, Jordan or somebody would, would break away for a, a dunk or something like that, they would make a, when they were, whenever they would make a great shot, they would immediately point. And, and as a kid, I would watch that and think, what in the world are they pointing to? Well, they were pointing to the, the guy who, who, who gave them the assist, who passed them the ball. They were trained that when they did something that was, you know, really good to immediately do what? Point away from yourself. We do not live in a point away from yourself culture. If, if kids today are not raised in a Christian family, they are being taught from the very beginning that the highest value in life is self-esteem, self-actualization, self-assertion. But what does Jesus tell us? Luke 9, 23, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him 
what? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. I love what Tim Keller says about humility. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Humility is getting over you and getting on with the glory of God. And so, humility is the kind of character that promotes unity in relationships and in the body. What else? Gentleness. Gentleness. With all humility and gentleness. Uh, The word here means mild-spirited, self-controlled, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Gentleness is not weakness. It is, it is strength under control. There is nothing weak about being able to control your emotions. That is strength. There is nothing weak about exercising self-restraint. Again, that is strength. Weakness is a lack of self-control. Weakness is going off on people when you're irritated. It takes a much stronger person to control your emotions, to exercise self-restraint. Thank God. He has been gentle with the likes of sinners like us. I love what Dane Orland says in his great book, Gentle and Lowly. Jesus does not throw his hands up in the air when he engages sinners. He is calm, tender, soothing, restrained. He deals with us gently. And he calls us to deal with one another that way. With all humility and gentleness, with what else? With patience. Patience. The Greek word literally here means long-tempered. Long-tempered. As opposed to short-tempered. Again, Dane Orland says so well, Jesus is not trigger-happy. Not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Now again, what if God were impatient with us? Where would we be? But that is not who God is. The the statement about God, about his character, that we read over and over and over again in the Old Testament comes from when God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, what? Slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Now, James picks up on this in his epistle, as he says in James 1.19, my dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Speaking of patience, and gentleness. Both are fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
Patience is also part of love. In the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, the Bible says, love is patient. And so patience leads to unity in relationships. What else do we see here? He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, and then what? Bearing with one another in love. This means that we continue to, to, to love one another and, and accept one another warts and all, f- flaws in, in all. Just as God continues to bear with us with all of our issues, all of our shortcomings, all of our flaws, all of our sins, he does not leave us or forsake us. No, he continues to bear with us with, with, with all of our sins and our shortcomings. He continues to hold on to us. Now listen, bearing with one another in love is the only way that any family can work. It's the only way. It's the only way that like your family can work is if when you learn to bear with one another in love. When you think about marriage, I, I don't know all the, all the challenges of your marriage, but I do know this if you're married. I know that you married a sinner. Husbands and wives, listen to me. You married a sinner. You are married to a sinner. You are married to a person who has all kinds of issues and irritating idiosyncrasies and things that you wish were different. You are married to a person who brought all kinds of baggage into the marriage. You are married to a person who deals with, with, with struggles in their life that they aren't even fully aware that they're dealing with. Because every single one of us, because of our sinfulness and our brokenness, all of us ha- have things that we're, we're struggles that we're dealing with in our lives. And some of them we see, and, and some of them we, we, we don't see. Because they're, they're, they're deep, and it requires the power of the Spirit a lot of times, and, and maybe outside help to even uncover. And the only way that you can make it work in a marriage or in family life, when you bring kids into it, right, every single one has got a unique personality, but they're all dealing with different things in their lives. It requires you listen to me, to bear with one another in love and learn to love one another and accept one another even with your, your, your sins and your shortcomings and, and the issues that we all deal with as broken people with sinful natures. Now, to be sure, if we're in Christ, the Holy Spirit is doing a work in our lives and the Spirit is transforming us, that's absolutely true. The Spirit is sanctifying us. The Spirit is making us more and more into the image of Christ. But sanctification is a lifelong project. 
around the neck of every believer should be the sign. It's an imaginary sign. It's there. (laughs) Be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. Because we're all under construction. That's just the way it works. Right? And that's the way it is in marriage. It's that way in family life. And the church is a family. The church is a family. The church is a, is a bunch of, 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 of sin, sinners who are brought together, forgiven, praise God. The Spirit is working on us if we're in Christ. Praise God, that's certainly happening, and we're here to help one another. However, all of us, all of us have, have issues and sins and shortcomings that we bring into the family. And sometimes we can get on one another's nerves and irritate one another and all that. That's family. That's part of family. But you don't walk away from your family because that's the case, right? No. You're called to bear with one another in love. That's the calling. And thank God that he does that with each one of us. Jesus says in John 6, 37, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. He says in, in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. But we've got a God who does not let go of us. He bears with us in love. That's what, what we're to do for one another. If you've raised kids you know that you spent a good chunk of your life holding on to little hands. And sometimes you hold on to their hand when you're just walking through the park, you're just taking a walk together, and it's just pure affection, and you hold on to their hand. And sometimes you hold hands when you're entering into danger, potential danger. If you're crossing a crowded street where there's traffic, what do you do? You hold hands. If you're, if you're in the surf, jumping waves at the ocean, what do you do? You, you hold one another's hand. And, and they'll reach out and grab your hand if you haven't done it first. <laughs> if you're out there in those waves. But you know what? The grip of a little kid, it's not that strong. They can, it can be pulled away from you. But if they're in danger, and you know this as a parent, it doesn't depend on their grip. It depends on your grip. And you're not letting go. If one of my little kids was in danger, you'd have to kill me for me to let go. It doesn't depend on their grip. It's, it's, it's about my grip on them. That's the way it is in our relationship with God. It's not about the strength of our grip. It's about the strength of his grip. And see, Jesus was killed so that we could be put into the hands of a father who will never let go. He will never let go. He continues to bear with you in love, even with all of your issues. And he calls upon us to bear with one another the way he bears 
with us. We're to be bearing with one another in, in, in love. And then what does he say in verse 3? He says we're to be making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Making every effort is a participle that, that means we are to treat the issue of unity in the church with utmost urgency, with the utmost importance. And notice here in verse 3 that we do not create unity. We're, we're assigned the task of keeping that, preserving that, protecting that. It's the Spirit that creates unity when He puts us together in one body. But within the body, God calls upon us to maintain that, to preserve that, to protect that, to guard that. You know, when I'm traveling overseas, I know how absent-minded I can be, and so I live in constant fear that I'm going to lose my passport, you know, with all the, the headaches that that would entail. And so, I, you know, I know myself too well. I have things that, that are designed to, to protect that and guard it, like special pants that actually zip, it, it, the passport fits in, and I can just zip it up. And so, it just guards against losing it. Or, you, you know, think about getting your wallet and your, uh, your cards and all that stuff stolen. That's bad enough if it happens here, but what about if it happens overseas? And so, you know, if I'm walking through a, a market or if I'm on a crowded subway or something like that um, with my wallet, let me tell you, my wallet's not in my back pocket. It's right here in front and my hand is shoved down on top of it. Well, if we guard and protect our valuables in that way, how much more should we guard and protect the precious unity of the body of Christ? That's what Paul is, is, is saying here. And so, each of us has a responsibility to do that. For instance, you know, if you hear somebody in the church, say something about a brother or sister, criticism, accusation, whatever, what that means is that you have a responsibility at that point. When you hear that, you have a responsibility in that moment to say, to ask, hey, have you, have you done what the Bible says and gone and talked to that brother or sister about what you're saying? Have you gone to them in a spirit of love and sat down with them and talked with them about this? And the answer is usually going to be no. And then you have a responsibility to say, well, well hey, listen, you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be talking about that person. You shouldn't be talking around that person. Like, you need to go to that person and sit down with them face-to-face in a spirit of gentleness and humility and love, and you need to, to talk through it right? So we have a responsibility to do things like that, to, that to, to, because what happens is if we kind of just passively listen to things that produce disunity and, and we don't do that and, and we don't kind of intervene and challenge at that point, then what happens is that the disunity kind of metastasizes and it spreads, right? And so it we have a responsibility 
to, to just not let that happen. What I have seen in, in churches through the years is that the overwhelming majority of people, and especially in you know, solid gospel Bible preaching churches, the overwhelming majority of people, like 90 some percent, are just not into causing trouble. They don't want to do that. They hate conflict, all that, right? But what so often happens is that that, that vast majority <laughs> Right, if, if, you're, if, if they're passive and they just allow a few people to run amok and cause trouble, then it just ends up hurting the whole church. You just can't let that happen, right? That's what he's saying here. You have a responsibility to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Right? That's the unifying conduct that matches your calling. Okay, third the unifying confession of the gospel. The unifying confession of the gospel. We see it in verses four through six. He says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now, almost certainly, this is an early Christian creed that these early believers had, had memorized because it just, it sums up so many powerful gospel truths. And there are seven, seven acclamations here of the oneness that we experience in the, in the gospel. And they flow together very, very logically. Let's walk through them, okay? He says in verse four, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope at your calling. So there's one body of Christ made up of every true born again believer throughout the world, right? And we are part of that one body because one spirit has, brought, has opened our hearts and brought us to Christ. And then we enter into that one hope that we all received at our calling. Look at verse five. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, this is, this is really a beautiful picture of, of, of what was happening in the early church and something that would, that would happen in the church. And, and that is that at their baptism, the early believers, and we, we, we do this here, the, the early believers, would, would, they would stand in the water and they would make the confession, Jesus is Lord. Many of them did that at the risk of their lives because when they stood there at their baptism and they said, Jesus is Lord, they were essentially saying, Caesar is not Lord. <laughs> and that could get them killed. But they made that one confession, one Lord right? At their baptism, at the beginning of their Christian life, which was the beginning of them entering into the, the faith, right? They, they were being baptized as believers who have entered into the one faith. What does he mean by the one faith? He means what Jude means. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. One faith. 
So this is not a unity at any price. It is a unity in the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, right? If we deny the essentials of the faith, there can't be unity, right? We, we, are, we are brought together in unity in that one faith, in the essentials of the faith, the faith once for all delivered for the, to the saints. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, verse six, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Do you notice how Trinitarian this statement is? One spirit, verse four, one Lord, verse five, it's Jesus, one God and Father of all, verse six. Father, Son, Spirit. John Stott says this, Christian unity arises from our having one Father, one Savior, and one indwelling Spirit. So we cannot possibly foster a unity which pleases God, either if we deny the doctrine of the Trinity or if we have not come personally to know God the Father through the reconciling work of His Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I would ask you today, if you're in this room, if you're watching a video today or at some point in the future, have you come to personally know God through the reconciling work of His Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit? Friend, you can come to know Him today, right now. Let's pray together. If you are here or if you are watching and you are not certain that you have come to know God personally, he invites you to know him. The work has been done for you to know him. He gave his son for sinners like you and me who shed his blood on the cross as our substitute so that we can experience forgiveness and newness of life. Christ rose from the dead so that we can receive eternal life. Death has been defeated for believers. And you can become a believer today. Turn to Christ. Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. To repent means to turn. It means to turn from trying to do life your own way apart from God. Repent and believe, trust. Believe means to trust, trust in Christ, trust in his death for your sins on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and receive him. Receive him, welcome him into your life as your savior and Lord and king today. We invite you to do that. If, if you were here as, a, as a, a believer, look at the walk that God is calling you to. God's put you in this family. Function in this family as a person who promotes the unity and harmony of the body and preserves that so that the church can be a place where where people can be won to Christ and new believers can grow and people can mature within the context of a, of a loving family.
that each of us has a responsibility to promote. Father, we pray for that. Lord, we pray that you would, would make us that kind of people in our character, just in the way that we walk, the way that we, the way that we function, the way that we uh, carry ourselves, Lord, um, in, the, in the church, in, in, in family life, in our work life. Lord, we're, there's only, we're called to one walk. <laughs> there's, no, there's no division between secular and sacred. Um, we want to be this kind of people wherever we are in whatever context that we are, that we are in. Father, I pray for anyone within my hearing today um, that b- began walking through this passage today, not really knowing you personally, Father, I pray that you would open hearts right now to receive Jesus and to know him as Savior and Lord and King and to enter into that love relationship that is only found in him. It's in his name that we pray. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you wanna spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 